Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode from Public Access America. As always, we're waiting for Jeffrey and our special guest today. But before we do that, I wanted to let you know about some house cleaning. We had some great episodes come out last week. We had something on COVID as it affects disabled students. Uh, it was a subcommittee meeting, so go ahead and check that out. Kind of boring, but kind of interesting, too. We also did an unsigned countdown with Adam from Adam Has a Beard. And um, go check that out. It was simulcast all over the place. Jeffrey's coming in, so I want to say hi to him. Ding dong. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you? What's up? How's it going? Good. I'm record. I was just recording the beginning, and while we wait for our guest. Ooh, so, fantastic! So, what yes. have you been up to? I let's see. I've been just podcasting like crazy you know what i mean uh our episodes with debbie came out Ooh, dan's here yay assalamu <laughs> alaikum everyone what starts here changes the world well i've got to admit i kind of like it what starts here changes the world we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams the average american will meet ten thousand people in their lifetime i was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language i did not speak don't think But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who was taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you're going to figure out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. 
There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. May God bless America. I love the way everything just tumbles in, you know? It sound like the doorbell's ring. It's quite lovely. Yeah, it Hello. Come on. Welcome in. What's up, fellas? There it is. What's up, Dan? Yeah, good to hear. You guys, are you guys okay with me being a disembodied voice today? Sure. Cool. Let's yeah, I, I got Moderna number two yesterday, and it's doing a number on me. So I'd rather keep the lights off and just relax and chat with you all about fun stuff when in low light conditions. So right. So what are some of the effects you're having from it? Um, I had really nasty chills and what are called rigors, which is basically like shaking. I didn't have a fever, but it's like it was rough all night, and I'm like. Not feeling so great so but totally worth it um to not spread COVID to other people so right and it's only expected to last 36 to 48 hours so that's yeah i'm already i'm already starting to feel better i just want to like take it nice and easy today but i was like yeah i can't i can't pass up the chance to talk to these fellows again it's been too long <laughs> yeah I, moderna number two did a number on on both debbie and i debbie was only had uh, debbie only had some issues for about 18 hours but like, so Debbie has Ehlers-Danlos and all of their joints were just like on Ooh. fire. So it was Ooh. like their normal joint pain, but like amped up to 11. It was, it was pretty brutal on them for a while. Yeah. That's like, something I noticed when I was doing case investigations on folks who, who got COVID itself. Like a lot of them had joint pain, which I think was interesting. 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 I don't I don't know what the link to that is. I know that it's probably been analyzed by folks with more experience in like medical stuff than I am, but I'm just curious to see what the link is there, why why that might yeah. be the case. I don't have an answer myself. I don't want to speculate. We were talking right. about an earlier show because we can speculate a little bit. <laughs> right, right. And we were saying that it could be that it just attacks the weaker points of your body. You know, because other people are having other symptoms in other fashions. And I got really dizzy on my second. I had Pfizer and I got really dizzy. I couldn't stand. I was lethargic and my arm hurt a little bit, but that was nothing compared to actually getting COVID and being on a ventilator, you know? Yeah. When I was sick, it, so I got sick in September through December of 2019. And they said that I had either bronchitis or pneumonia, but they couldn't confirm either. And they put me on, you know, the regiment was the same for both. It was basically just, you know, antibiotics and take my inhaler and, you know, wait it out. But I had the issues for months and it was absolutely miserable. And then as we learned more about COVID, I started speculating that I probably had COVID before we knew what COVID was. And after I got shot number two, I had problems breathing again, the exact same way mm -hmm. that I felt during September through December of 2019. And so I was like, I, I think I probably had COVID before we really understood what COVID was. And mm -hmm. just because it was exactly the same. And then based off of what the WHO was saying, they said that there were about a dozen variants running around China by December 
of 2019. So it wouldn't surprise me that, you know, when we finally get 2019's data, that we start to see a rise in like pneumonia or bronchitis cases that's right. kind of start rising towards the end of the year. And then I think that whatever happened, we get the variant known as COVID that we're now all used to that ends up killing over half a million Americans. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to tell. I know that the, um, if you look at the CDC data on mortality from like comparing uh, bronchitis or not bronchitis, but like pneumonia and up and respiratory infection or respiratory disease deaths, there was a spike in deaths that started kind of before COVID was really identified to be like, really serious circulating like it was when we knew that COVID was still in the um in in the united states um but those death numbers started to climb into places before we really had a lot of mass testing going on so i think we were just a li- like a couple weeks too late but that's the thing with exponential growth it's like you miss it you miss uh, something by a couple days and you're you're behind forever afterwards so yeah, uh, yeah it's right. a real challenge so but yeah well, i was looking at the um vaccination rates by race that was the first thing i stumbled on i didn't put it in my notes or anything but it there's a vast disparity between white and asian and black populations and i just i just wondered if you could dispel any myths that this covid treats people of different races in different ways because i can't see why people would be hesitant to get it based on their race i don't understand that one. so it's not uh, so actually that's a really interesting question um because i don't think it's a question of whether or not covid is disproportionately like covid is definitely disproportionately affected um certain people of color like and a, but a lot of that is based on um the link between um race ethnicity and socioeconomic status in the exactly. united states right so a lot of people who are uh, black or hispanic or latinx um because of systemic racial issues um live in areas of the country that are lower income um have less access to reliable uh, health care but also um a lot of those um people of color have those communities have had culturally or uh, historically uh, bad relationships with public health professionals. Um, so right. part of it is like not like public health is like not just like kind of forgotten about them. Like there's obviously all the kinds of stories about like the vaccines being shipped to places where it's kind of easier to go to, um, mm-hmm. where you have like more established infrastructure, and that happens to be in like more well-off communities, which happen to be more white because of again systemic racism. But also, if you go back to the history of public health, there have been a lot of things we've done even in the up into the mid 20th century and beyond that have that were objectively racist. Like I don't know if you've heard about the Tuskegee syphilis study, where um, yep. black pe- black men were deliberately given syphilis to study them. Right. And so there's and that's just like a major you know, kind of flash in the pan like story um, but there's been a lot of situations where um uh, people of color in disadvantaged communities have not been well served by public health infrastructure and that is our failure um so it's not an issue of like um black people are less likely to get severe covid in fact mortality rates for black people and latinx people are higher right um, but it's it's not necessarily because of race it's because of systemic factors that are linked to race that right. are causing public health issues and that's like it, it's the same thing it's like uh, one thing that i've talked about a lot with my colleagues is that um covid has really brought out 
or really forced us to acknowledge a lot of the problems that we've had in our society, both racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, but also like the 40 hour work week, <laughs> right? Like right. It's like up and down the up and down, like everything in our society, we've kind of been forced to question because of the lockdowns, because of, you know, the, the sudden changes to what we consider to be normal. Um, and yeah. that's really been the racial, the racial issues in this country have been magnified and really brought into the front and center because of COVID and the, the responses that we've had to have for COVID. Yeah, we don't realize how much of our communities are on the edge of poverty until something just tips them over. You know, even, even with where I work, you know, on a lot of the changes that we've had to make, you know, we've had to make with work from home, you know, we've noticed that, you know, there have been, we've exchanged some stresses for others. So like, for example, we are far lower on the concerns of like child care, child health, like how we're going, you know, people being able to make it into work. Some of those questions, because with work from home, everybody has their setup and, you know, they've, the their internet connection, you know, that's another issue that we've had to solve, but <clears throat> they've been able to more reliably care for their family, especially younger children. And now with the, with the look at, return to work happening we're starting to see some of that nervousness around returning to work due to you know number one lack of vaccinations in younger right. you know y the younger population number two just that whole return of well now i have to choose you know transportation and child care and all of that and you know but the stress that we've had during work from home is everybody's felt burnt out because you just you know even though like we are like when you're done you're done you're not getting back on your work computer that's just mm -hmm. you know those are our rules i mean if if somebody needs to reach you they can reach you tomorrow when you sign in or on monday or whatever so i mean we've definitely seen that exchange and i think that's something that you know at least in, you know for my organization we're going to have to keep that in mind as we move forward. But number two, I mean, every organization out there is going to have to think about that. Not everybody's going to be comfortable sending their kid back to school without vaccinations, even though like, you know, yeah, the, the rates of children getting COVID is low. We've actually started to see a rise in that even here in Thurston County now where we've had several outbreaks in Olympia schools. And that's just one of those things where I mean, it doesn't take a, a, a math person or a you know, or an immunologist or an epidemiologist to be able to say that children are a vector of disease. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, it's it's a real it is a real challenge to like. It's, it, I think it's a very American problem, right? It's it's not we we're very good <laughs> at intervening very aggressively, and we have no idea how to pull out safely and securely, right? Now it's like they look sure. at Afghanistan and Iraq, right? We've been in there for so many years, like we we're really good at like dumping troops in and having like a like a conquest focused mind, like we'll shut down COVID, we'll stop it from spreading. But now we're like, okay, how do we kind of extricate ourselves? Culture, I think there's a cultural issue that we've got in America of like not being able to like ease off the gas in a sensible way. But yeah. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. I don't think we can ease off the gas if if 58 million people are anti-vaccinations and 74 million people just don't believe they need to get it because the other people will get it. And that brings us to herd immunity. And mm -hmm. there was a time when we were promoting herd immunity. Well, the administration, the prior administration was 
promoting herd immunity for the disease, that everybody should get the disease so it would go away. But it seems like those same people don't believe in herd immunity for the vaccine, that we should all get the vaccine <laughs> so that we can build up our herd immunity. And I, I don't know how we get past that. It'll be a, it's a perpetual problem, right? It's, yeah. uh, there's, it, looking back, through, again, looking back at the history of public health, right? It's not just, you know, herd immunity. There's always a substantial minority of the population that has always been against, you know, changes in policy yeah. because of freedoms. Like you look back, one of the, one of the most successful, um, well, vaccination, like of small, for smallpox and polio were two of the most successful public health campaigns in the history of, of history of history basically mm, but agreed. one of the most one of the other most successful uh, public health campaigns was um the implementation of seatbelt laws in, in cars and um changing car designs especially in the 50s and 60s because if you look at look at the um uh the normalized or population adjusted mortality rates for car crashes back then it was way way higher than it was now right. and then cars got redesigned airbag laws changes to ways that you know um even steering wheels were designed mm -hmm. seat belts were implemented laws all about that mm -hmm. there was a substantial but very vocal minority of folks who really hated that like impingement on people's freedom <laughs> but then what happened was like now not really any there's very few people who are like really against seatbelts because right. over decades it takes decades it takes generations for people to kind of uh, accept the change of the norm and it's really worked like yes we have if you look at the rate the 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 death numbers we have more people dying from car crashes today than we did in the 50s and 60s but that's the same thing with epidemiology like you you adjust for the increase in population it's right. way 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 decreased right um, one of my favorite sayings is epidemiology is the study of denominators, right? You know, you're always looking, you're calculating rates and trying to count and, you know, okay, these many people are dying from this, these many people have diseases, but you have to make sure that you're adjusting for the population changes or, you know, defining the groups that you're trying to study really well. And that's a, that's a classic example. But back to your, back to your point was that, yeah, there's always going to be people who, whenever there's something that's public health that is objectively helpful to society are just going to reject it on the basis of freedom and impinging on on rights and it's a it's a fair question to bring up at what point does public health get superseded by individual liberty and it's a constant debate in the field yeah and that was started in 1902 actually 1905 the first supreme court case but you know i relate it to something even older jaywalking you know people used to cross the street anywhere and they would just get hit and die but then they started a campaign where they would mock people for jaywalking and actually tease them and make the public want to make fun of them until they just didn't want to do it because it was too embarrassing to do. And I think that's where we have to go with getting more people to get vaccines is to guilt them and embarrass them into getting them. <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's one of the funny things is because I was having a conversation about um, vaccination rates in the army and one of the biggest push pushbacks that, you know, uh, that they've heard is, is that, well, the vaccine's not FDA approved, so I don't want to get it. And, you know, uh, my friend said, look, you know, at this point, do you really think it's not going to get FDA approved, you know, either Pfizer or Moderna? And, and that's, you know, the reality is, is that like, like the FDA approval thing has been a really funny point to me because you know, we got emergency use authorization, which mm. in and of itself is a form of FDA approval. It's not full approval, uh, right. clearly, but, you know, obviously it's been judged to be safe enough that it could be released to the public. You know, when I look at what we've seen from Pfizer and Moderna, you know, the, the risks are relatively low. 
uh, with Johnson and Johnson, it's a lot higher. Like when I look at the way that our system works and how we just pulled the plug on AstraZeneca, that's not going to be an option in this country from the looks of it. That's honestly the way that I expect our system to work. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, it seems as though there's a lot more, uh, uh, there are more questions about what may what might be the root cause of some of these blood clots, you know, especially because the early data showed that it was just like, it was only in women like 18 to 35 or 40. And that's like prime birth control usage mm. and birth control. Like one of the notorious problems with birth control is blood clotting. So the question there is, you know, were these women on birth control and that the blood clotting issues were a function of the birth control versus were the were these women on birth control and the vaccine kind of you know gave that clotting issue an additional push i don't see how the two could be correlated that way though but i don't i don't know anything it's, about coronavirus. it's so hard to like establish those kinds of correlations or, causa right. or causality because there were six cases Right. There were six cases. Whenever you're trying to do any kind of you know, population level study, it's incredibly difficult. And uh, I actually had the privilege of being on one of the calls where the CDC updated a bunch of uh, health officials, like explaining in detail all the data that went into why they had that pause in Johnson and Johnson because of the blood clots. And they, when you adjust, I mentioned epidemiology is the science of denominators. When mm -hmm. you look at the group that was affected, which was the uh, women of you know females of reproductive age who took the who had the vaccine the um the risk the the elevated risk of that specific population getting the vaccine versus not for the particular condition was between four and 16 times more likely to have something happen um have that have that condition occur if you had taken the vaccine recently mm. so four to 16 times is is sounds really dangerous but then again you have to be like four to 16 times versus six cases right because it's an exceptionally right. rare condition and right. uh, and to Jeffrey's point, like birth rates of blood clotting from birth control and rates of you know other side effects from other medications that people just are, accept as normal, right? They're they're mm -hmm. much riskier. And there's a classic David Offit has a really prominent um, vaccine outreach guy. He said, and it's been very accurate. The the, the riskiest part, at least for the Pfizer Moderna, the riskiest thing that you do related to your vaccine is actually driving to go get the vaccine because you're right. more likely to get killed in a car crash than you are dying from getting you know after getting the Pfizer Moderna. So it's it's it comes down to our public assessment of risk and 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 how we interpret it and whether or not we can do it. And historically, humans have been terrible <laughs> at assessing and understanding relative risk, which yeah. is a miracle we're still alive as a species. Well, I mean, that's that's one of those things. Like, you know, we, you know, in my family, um, unfortunately, you know, my uncle Tom uh, had uh, a stroke uh, seven days after he got the Moderna vaccine, and some of my family has decided that because my uncle Tom got the vaccine and had a stroke that that's clearly the cause. Now I love my uncle Tom dearly, but you know, as a scientist, I have to be objective about what might've caused that. And the reality is, is that my uncle Tom has not exactly lived his best life in terms of health, like constant smoker const, you know, he's, he drank a lot and hard. He has had, you know, he was known as the fry bread King in Eastern Montana. Mm. You know, health-wise, like, the guy has literally done everything to his health that doctors would be, like, crying in the corner over. But 
you know, suddenly, you know, he got his first shot, nothing happened. He got the second shot and then seven days later had a stroke. Now, of course, the CDC is going in and they're doing a full investigation as to what might have happened. That's awesome. And this is, and that's where I tell, and that's where I tell people, it's like, look, correlation does not equal causation. You know, he mm-hmm. had no problems during the first, he had no problems during the first shot. He got the second shot seven days, you know, seven days later is when he had a stroke there are a lot of questions that are going to be laying out there. Like, you know, was this already underlying? Like I couldn't tell you because I don't have access to his health records. Like, did he have high blood pressure? Did they notice hardening, hardening, uh, hardening of the arteries early on? Like there's so much information out there that we don't have, sure. but everybody, you know, you know, just depending on your mindset, you're, you're looking for an excuse to either do something or not do something. And, and unfortunately in this case, they're using it as an excuse to not do something. And, and I think that, I think that that's a mistake. Now, if the CDC says, yes, absolutely. This was definitely a cause of that. Then it's something that we're going to have to accept. But also if they come back and say, look, you know, the lifestyle your uncle lived was by any doctor's standards. I mean, that's kind of one of those things that we're going to have that question pop up of, did the vaccine cause this or did the lifestyle cause this? And I think that's a, I think that's probably a really good question in a lot of cases where you might find adverse effects Hmm. that they just aren't related, but there's enough underlying health issues and health conditions there that they were already potentially in, in, in a bad spot before the vaccine happened. And maybe the vaccine knocked something loose, kind of like, you know, kind of like what we were talking about with Johnson Johnson. There's, I, there's just, you know, in terms of the data that's available, there's just no way to say that at least there's, there's no easy way to say it. I'm sure that their, their methodology is uh, far more in depth. uh, And maybe Dan knows a little bit more about that. I don't know how you could know anything in 18 months about any of this that you don't expect to know in 10 years. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think Jeffrey brings up just to kind of abstract from what Jeffrey was saying is that the whole um, question about your uncle getting this, getting a stroke. And again, mm-hmm. I'm very sorry that that happened is that you are approaching that discussion and debate in a good faith, wanting to find out what happened mm-hmm. way. And you're trying to set your own biases for or against the vaccine aside. And that is a really serious, um, uh, thing to do. It's a very difficult thing for us to put our emotions aside, especially when it comes to our family member safety. And right. so when we have these discussions, a lot of people have their own biases, their own emotional, um, approaches both for and against the vaccine Mm. Um, and i'm personally very for the vaccine because i've looked at the evidence but i think one thing that a lot of people who are very vaccine hesitant or vaccine skeptical i I don't want to say vaccine hesitant people who are very firmly anti-vaccine right um have a fundamental belief that public health officials are trying to force a bad vaccine onto people to deliberately cause harm death or control or something like that i'm like i i this is anecdotal, but everyone I work with, just if there was, if we had any evidence that the vaccine, any vaccine was causing more harm than good, it would be pulled off the market, right? It's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's just the way that it is, but people have this, you know, this pre-biased um, or this preset bias in their head where it's like, well, because they're putting this injection into my arm, 
they want me to do it because they want me because they're the government and I don't trust the government and, and right. everything kind of steamrolls from there. And it's yes. very it's very hard to engage in discussions with folks like that because they whatever you try to talk through, you're not going to break their bias. Whereas mm -hmm. people who are vaccine hesitant, like there's a lot of women who are concerned about fertility because there right. was, again, a lot of that has been debunked, but people are very concerned about fertility. Like you can have a good faith discussion because they want to know. Or folks who are concerned about long-term effects of the vaccine who are like, I'm going to wait and see. Those those are people you can engage and have a discussion in, and you that's where we're really going to uh, improve vaccine uptake not with the folks who are going to be firmly against it no matter how hard it is but the folks right. who are are concerned and worried and are, would be happy to have a discussion and want to look at the data and want to do that and there's a, a tens of millions of americans in that in that situation and that's where we really should be focusing our efforts to improve uh rates of vaccine uptake and i, I just really hope that public health officials are willing to engage in those discussions more and more so I, I think on I think on that question though you know, I think I think we need to maybe dig into it a little bit more personally. I think one of our biggest shortfalls is, is that, you know, this day and age where you have the media on blast for not necessarily being as honest as you'd like it to be, people are looking more towards. I mean, unfortunately, there's social media, but once again, you know, even the social media presence by, like, say, the CDC or your county health officials, people are quick to dismiss that. So I guess the question would be is. Is there more of a role of family doctors to play in this? Oh, of course. <clears throat> by, yeah. by working, you know, with the the those that haven't been vaccinated, and sitting down and being able to address those issues. Um, just because, like, you know, a lot of people tend to listen to their family doctors a lot more closely than, let's say, you know, mm. you know, you know, who, their, you know their who uncle or their cousin. You know who they're listening to is their pastors. And their church congregations. And I think that's exactly. an important place. That's the place to let them know it's just not okay that the mocking, you know, <laughs> in a way that only a church can do, mock their people into doing what they need to do. But I think I think there's a bit of a slippery slope theory with anti-vaxxers. And they're saying you want to take this right so you can take two more the next time. And I just don't think they're thinking about the the overall public good. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's all a tough thing, but we all need to get involved, and that's why we're doing this. My actual concern with having Dan on was I didn't think people were listening to scientists anymore. The ones that would already have, and the ones that don't, don't aren't going to believe Dan. He could speak for a half an hour, and in the end, they're just going to say, nuh-uh, and they're right. And so that's what really bugged me. But I did want to get to some specific questions that people are having about it, and then maybe Dan can help explain the finer points of it. So absolutely. That's why I joined. I'm, I'm always happy to have these discussions and that's why I want to keep coming back. So there's, shoot, there's, there's, a, there's a question about what if I am allergic to specific ingredients in the vaccine and some people aren't getting tested. They're just saying I might be. And so, and, and the answer is no, don't get vaccinated. If you are allergic to the specific components of the vaccine but i wanted to ask dan because the pfizer vaccine has three ingredients well four it has the mrna but it has lipids salts and sugars and so honestly in the pfizer i couldn't pronounce any of the name of the lipids and i was hoping to just get a general description <laughs> on what a lipid is absolutely so a, a, the 
a lipid is a type. So carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, um, those are the, some of the major categories of different types of molecules that exist in nature. Um, right. And they're some of the types of molecules that make up all of life, right? So a lipid is, um, there's different types of lipids, but they are basically types of molecules that are predominantly found in like membranes of your cells right okay. so that's a, a place where a lot of them are found they're very similar when you think lipid think like oils all right. of our cells are basically sacks of water with stuff in them that are separated by thin layers of oils um, and those oils basically are like one of the major components are lipids um, so without getting too technical they're very like oil based. They do not mix well with water, um, but they are uh, key parts in making up kind of dividing sections of our cells and also dividing sections in viruses, right? So um, with the uh, vaccine itself, with like the Pfizer and Moderna, which vaccines are very similar, the lipids is the type of molecule that makes the little package that the mRNA is in. Um, so you have the mRNA in the middle, which is like the, the genetic material that your cells use to create the surface protein that your your immune system responds to. But the, the lipids are basically the package in which those come in. And that's a kind of a standard way for all, like you have all kinds of like virus like particle research and all viruses use kind of lipids as packets as well as all of our cells. So the fact hearing the word lipids does not necessarily mean anything bad. It's just, you know, part of life. It's just a type of molecule. But that's what to think of is like the the oily like edges or the oily sack, the sacks that kind of um, make up the barriers or boundaries between our cells or viruses or bacteria. Fantastic. So this is one of my favorite ones that I, I that has actually come up and that I've addressed personally, but I definitely want to hear your take on this as well. Um, so one of the questions has, that has come up that I've seen is, well, what could possibly be in the vaccine to cause it to expire and, and them not be able to use all the doses during their vaccination efforts? My explanation was that you know, when they gave emergency use authorization, when what they do is they have to use the vaccine pretty much exactly the way that it was used in the trial. So if it had a specific shelf, you know, if it only had a specific cell shelf life during the, the trial, that was their limit for how they could use it. That doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine expires or expires in that time frame. It just means that according to the way that it was used in the trial, they can't use it outside of that method. So they just don't have the data to find out how effective it is after sitting on the shelves for a while. That's something that they have to have to figure out yet still, or maybe they have it figured out, but they were only using it, you know, within a certain range of days. So that way it's, you know, for the emergency use authorization, it's you only use it during that specific time frame. Everything else has to get shipped off or shipped back or however they decided to do that. Yeah, you're you're. I think that's a that's part of it at least is that you know, uh, and that's something to kind of take back, take a step back, and say yes, the way the emergency use authorizations or or even appro FDA approval processes are very strict and very specific um, for any kind of drug, including any vaccine. Right, you have to use it within this particular amount of time, or you have to dispense of it, dispose of it, or dis uh, use these kind of very standardized formulas or formula uh, or 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 protocols to be able to give it to folks. Um, but another major reason why you have to give it so quickly is because um, 
the, the the vaccine itself, which looks like a virus. If you look at like at the molecular level, the way it looks like is basically a fake virus. Um, those will break down over time at room temperature or at mm. body temperature. So you have to keep them frozen. I think Moderna usually at minus 20. Pfizer was at minus 80. I think people are now using minus 80 degrees Celsius as well. I'll have to double check myself on that. But when you have those really, really cold temperatures, um, the, the vaccine components stay stable. But if you thaw those out to be used um, for vaccine like dispensing, then you know over time, you know those are going to break down. And if you if you break down the, the 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 structure, which is like I mentioned, like the lipids, which make up the like the sac that the genetic material mRNA right. is in. If you if you let that just decompose or degrade, then it's not going to do the bio the biology of how it actually works doesn't work, and then it's not going to be effective. You might as well just be in, injecting some saline into some person and saying that's a vaccine, right? So right. part of it is definitely like there's a specific protocol that needs to be followed because the, it worked in the clinical trials that way. But mm -hmm. also part of it is you want it to actually be stable and actually have the same structure. So part of it is like regulatory and part of it is just like knowing the biochemistry of the um of the vaccine itself i think of the lipid as like the mat when you go down a slip and slide you know it helps it get where it needs to go it it, it lubricates um the pathway for what you're trying to deliver that's a way to think about it yeah i think that i like that mm -hmm. i think of it as like you know you're trying to drive from point a to point b um, in a car, right? And right. You, you're in the car, you are the genetic material trying to get from point A to point B to do something, you know, either go to work or see your family, whatever, you're trying to do something. And you use your car as the way that you drive around. Well, if you're, if you're leave your car out in the rain and don't take care of it 15, 20 years, and then right. it's rusty, and then the car just kind of literally falls apart on the way, you're not going to get from point A to point B. Mm. So you know, it's basically the same thing, except at a much more accelerated rate when you let these things just stay out of room temperature for too long. Like you okay. don't want the car breaking down and the, the axles rusting out and falling out, <laughs> and you're stuck on the side of the road. You're like, well, shit, I don't know where it's going to go next. So sorry. Right. I, right. Language. <laughs> but generally, people aren't allergic to lipids is i think what i was trying to get at. um yeah i again i'm not a, ph a pharmacist so right. i don't want to comment too much on it but the lipids that make up the vaccine are very similar to the lipids that are in a lot of our cells so some people right. do might have some sensitivity to some of the small ingredients but the p the rate of people who or the percent of people who really truly have serious allergies to these vaccine ingredients in general is really really low yeah, it's it important for us to know and if people are truly allergic, we want to make sure that they know and that, you know, mm -hmm. they don't get the vaccine. And then those of us who are able to get the vaccine, we should to help protect those who cannot. Because right. if we are immune, if a lot of us are immune, talk about herd immunity, a lot of us are immune, that that reduces the number of ways that a virus can get through the population to that person who's not vaccinated. Exactly. Um, so right. I, I think it's important, and, and we should definitely take people who are worried about their allergies very seriously, accommodate them, try to get them the testing to confirm Thank that they you. are, and then if they if they are allergic, say, okay, don't get the vaccine because we don't want you to have a serious reaction. That's that's not our goal right now. Um, we don't want anyone to die from this. But there um, is there is a way to test there is a way to test instead of just being scared, not knowing and saying, I'll just wait. You can yeah. get tested to see if you're allergic for these ingredients. Yes, are, are yeah, there are available. Salt, yeah. Sugar, salt, and oil. It's not like they're they're exotic. So, Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a way to think about it, right? Like with um, 
there are definitely some things about the the vaccine components that are not i don't want to say not natural but there mm -hmm. are like when you look down at like the actual like building blocks you get down to basically the molecular version of the legos right you have some you know lipids or you know or carbohydrates or sugars or proteins that are made up of like a red block a blue block and a green block of lego right. um right. and you might be allergic to red block blue block green block and someone else when you might be one in a million and everyone else is fine with it. So really understanding that there are definitely ways to test that. Um, mm -hmm. And people who are concerned or who have had past histories of allergies to these vaccines should be good, uh, should be, should definitely get some, the support that they need and, the, and allergy physicians being able to help out. But that's right. another reason why we have like the standard practice of waiting 15 minutes after the vaccine, mm -hmm. right? Because we're not really sure. We haven't had the long-term data to see, but we have all these people who wait 15 minutes. And I actually know somebody who did have an lactic reaction within like five minutes of getting the shot wow. so they were on site the the emts were on site they had the epipens the epinephrine to take care of that and some someone who would have probably died if they were just like on their way home mm -hmm. got treated immediately went to the hospital was discharged a few hours later completely fine because we had that system in place right That's and so true. again going back to the point that jeffrey and i discussed <clears throat> earlier right having the good faith understanding that we're not trying to inject some random control thing into people's bodies we want to mm -hmm. stop covid and we have set up this structure to be able to make sure that anyone who does have rare reactions gets the immediate urgent support that they need. Sure. But if your friend and your friend's friend told you that there's something bad in the vaccine, you kind of stress about it without researching it. And then you have um, that placebo effect kind of thing where you think it's going to happen because someone told you it would. Oh, and yeah. So that's what I'm just trying to get past. I'm letting people know. So the Moderna vaccine is an interesting thing because it has the MNRA it has lipids and it has salts, but it has acids like citrus acids, citric acids and acid stabilizers. Is there a difference there or is that just the replacement for the sugars? I mean, that's, it's not, it's a, it's an additional preservative, right? So citric right. acid, I mean, citric acid is in every, you know, you have a one glass of orange. Yeah. You have a glass, you have a glass of orange juice. Right. You're gonna you're getting a million a million times more citric acid than you are from the vaccine, right? The relative right. dosage. Right? It's, everyone's talking. Uh, this is off topic a little bit, but like the the all the vaccines, everyone's afraid of a uh, ingredient called thimerosal. Uh, it's mm. because it contained mercury. Well, if, if you ever eaten a pe yeah. if you ever eaten a pear, you've had a hundred times or a thousand times more mercury from that one pair than you have from a single vaccine that ever contained any thimerosal. But still, thimerosal was outlawed, and it's not in modern vaccines anymore. That's so right. it's it's all about this relative this this idea of you know the dose makes the poison. I mean, some mm -hmm. things can't are really toxic, and for sure. And we don't want to you know we don't want to assume that everything is non toxic just because it's a small quantity. But a small amount of citric acid. Citric acid sounds like a scary word, right? It's acid. You think of stuff that like burns your right, skin. It's like, right. Right. Well, I mean. I can read off the, if you look at the molecular components of an apple, I can like, they're, they sound really scary when you, when you break that down. In fact, if you give me a few seconds, I'm going to pull that up, like the list of no problem. like molecular components of an apple. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, just give me about 30 seconds. I, can, um, I'll I, think, I think I'm more afraid of citric acid after I have a bowl of Captain Crunch. Right. <laughs> there's a lot, <laughs> believe me, there's a lot. If you ever had a, if you ever had a cigarette, you ever had a hot dog? You, you do oh, not need gosh. to worry about the level of citric acid. In a, yeah, in a, if you've had a hot dog, you've eaten more sphincter than most people have that claim to eat ass. 
I do. I do have a note on that. <laughs> oh joy! That is that's not something I ever expected to hear. But <laughs> wow, that's hilarious. And I, I, I do have a note on that um, about some of the anti-vax rhetoric going on, and the mercury being, you know, being that issue. And so I, I do have that down. They stopped using that in 1999. They stopped. They started removing toxins. There's a new movement called green vaccines, and there's always re- there's research that's ongoing. It's all been it's all been disproven. There's, the effects don't co- the what the toxins that were in there do not cause what you're saying it causes. But they're still researching it to this day, 22 days, 22 years later. You know. Yeah. What I mean? let, let me read. I found I found a good uh, peer reviewed yeah. article from the uh, uh, the journal Advances in Nutrition, which goes and talks about some of the chemicals that are in an apple, just to give a comparison, right? So let me read. Try and read some hydroxycinnamic acid. The Dihydrochalcone. Oh, I don't like that. Flavanol, mm. pro, procyanidin. Uh, what else we got? Uh, anthocyanin, polyphenol, epitacacin. <laughs> right. All that sounds really scary, but that's just that's an organic apple. <laughs> it's that's, a, a, that's a that's a good old na- nice organic tasty apple that keeps I've, the doctor away, right? So I mean, you know, it probably has it probably has the chemical dihydrogen monoxide in it too. Oh god, that's hundred percent of people who've had dihydrogen monoxide have died. Right. Mm. Yep. It's water, by the way. <laughs> and that's water. No, it right. was hilarious. We actually did that in high school, where the science teacher that I had did this whole campaign to try to get the school to ban dihydrogen monoxide. <laughs> and, and I mean to tell you, like it took off, like people were like freaked out about dihydrogen monoxide. And then when we're sitting there in chemistry class, the teacher asked me to sign it. And I said, no. And he's like, why, why would you not ban this chemical? It's killed so many people. Like it has, it causes vomiting and diarrhea. It's a main ingredient in so many of these things. I'm like, I'm not banning water. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you just see like everybody get really confused and it's like dihydrogen monoxide is the chemical name of water uh-huh. and then all of a sudden you just see people go oh god i got freaked out over nothing oh no no luckily we didn't have the social media side of things back in that at that point but i mean that's that's one of the problems about like chemistry and sciences is that it's so easy to get people freaked out over things that they don't understand and and just just the simple act of trying to ban dihydrogen monoxide was very it caught on very hard because like we know what carbon monoxide is and carbon monoxide happens to be very bad for you yeah oh i fully agree and it's it's the same thing it's something to keep in mind is that you can whip people into a frenzy very quickly and it's something that we all get caught up in right it's it's Mm -hmm. it's important for us to to keep in mind that's like we get caught up in our own biases and that's why it's important for all like it's kind of a circle of accountability right when we we when we see other people like spouting off bullshit to respectfully engage them and say hey this this is this is not true right and here's why and it's like always like it's when having these discussions it's always important to have a first instinct that people are not trying to be scammers right most people who are raising concerns about this are not actually trying to like 
scam people out of something or be deliberately evil or, yeah. or manipulative or psychopathic about any of it. Like people just, it's it's understandable. Like all the most of the va- most of the people who are anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant have the same kind of philosophy towards ca- general health as we do, and that is, I don't want to die from having a bad medication or a bad chemical in my body. And I don't want my children or my family members to be harmed by something that could really kill them. Right. That's pretty much the whole point behind all of public health, right? We want people to not die from preventable diseases and toxic compounds, right? <laughs> yeah, so please. if you, if you really take the extra moment to say, look, I, I agree with you on that prince, that fundamental level, I just disagree on the like, and have a try and engage in that good faith. Now, obviously there's people who are snake oil salesmen and those people need to be called out because they are deliberately misleading folks, but most people yeah, aren't. Yeah. And most people are just good people who are concerned about their health and the health of their community. And that's something that we really need to embrace more. Um, I, I remember in one of my public health classes in grad school um, where we were uh, the entire, it was a class of 150 people. It was like, it was, uh, I was in a, I went to a graduate school of public health, but I did not do a master's of public health degree. I did a master's science degree. And so all the master science and doctoral students had to take a class, which was like a crash course in like basis of public health. <laughs> and in one of those classes, it was talking about like this whole thing, like public understanding and health literacy and the professor like showed um a tweet that has gone kind of viral multiple times pun intended where it was like i i don't like vaccines i just wish that scientists would come up with some way for us to like get some immunity to the virus or a virus without it actually causing disease but i don't like vaccines and the 100 plus people in the class just laughed at this tweet and like thought oh look get a load of this dumbass i'm like why are we laughing the fact that this guy said that on social media is a failure of our job to be able to engage and educate, right? Mm-hmm. We should be reflecting on like, how did we fuck up so that he believes something that is like genuinely not true? Because that's something that we can very clearly say, hey, this how the vaccine works. Like we need to reflect ourselves and say on, on ourselves and say, what are we doing wrong that is preventing <clears throat> people from understanding or preventing people from getting access to that information or being in a state of mind where they want to engage, right? And that's a very hard introspective thing to do. Yeah, I think one of the biggest problems, though, is is that, like, as scientists, it's easy for us to talk about things on a grad school level or even at an undergraduate level. But I I think one of our biggest shortcomings is is that we don't really try to communicate things on a national uh, national understanding level, which is about an eighth grade level. I think that's one of our biggest shortcomings is, is that it's very easy for me to get involved in, you know, in talking about the technical calculations and how you track and trend data. And then suddenly just have someone sitting there looking at me, eyes completely glossed over, thinking I'm a witch doctor. And the reality is, is that it's, you know, the math itself is very complicated, but the way that we're actually looking at this information is very simple. And so maybe that's one of the things that in terms of public health that we need to be really looking at is how do we actually communicate this stuff at the appropriate level? So that way we don't have, like you said, this issue of somebody sending out a tweet and it going viral. But the reality is, is that it's actually pretty fucking harmful. It is. It is very harmful. And I, I fully agree with you. And that's something that is only starting, unfortunately, only starting to really gain ground in public health. It's the concept of health literacy, mm-hmm. right? If you, uh, this, this, it's a little bit abstract, but basically health literacy is like how well you understand the basics of 
not just medical care, like you don't need to like be able to like diagnose and treat disease and know all your prescriptions and everything, but just generally understanding things that are healthy, things that are not, and understanding what are true risks to your health and how things work. Right. And if you adjust, like even if you adjust for like age, race, sex, um, comorbid conditions, health, and and all that other stuff, health literacy status is one of the most reliable predictors of overall health over a lot of conditions or like a lot of medical conditions people have because somebody who is very severely overweight or somebody who has diabetes or somebody who has you know xyz condition who does not understand what that condition means and what they need to be mindful of is mm -hmm. going to have much worse overall health than somebody who knows what it is and understands and is mindful of it mm -hmm. and so a lot of it's it's kind of like to jeffrey's point a lot of us like to talk in public health at a very high higher level of uh, like detailed understanding that takes years to get to right. and we forget how to engage with folks and when we do that we're actually harming the public a lot more than you know we're working on all these esoteric papers that are only going to be read for a few hundred by a few hundred people in our field as opposed to thinking okay how can i communicate this to people who are inherently good inherently want the most best for their health but just have not had the accessibility of the education that we've had without being condescending and saying, oh, you little dumb little idiots who don't know, understand. Like that's, that's not, that's but a lot of people in public health and in science have that uh, unconscious bias towards people who are not in science. And we really need to, you know, break, sure. the, break through that. So, you know, one of our friends, <clears throat> it was funny because I was uh, our, our friend, Adam, a dog, shout out a dog. We love you, buddy. Um, him and I sat down one day and we were talking about the moon landing and got into the conversation of, you know, how was it possible to make it to the moon and back on a tank of rocket fuel? And so because I have a broad depth of understanding in a lot of different subjects, I was explaining orbital physics to him. Now I can't break down the math for Adam. I mean, I can barely break down the math for myself, but understanding that it's like, okay, if you understand how gravity works, gravity is going to pull you down this way. And if you understand how thrust works, thrust is going to push you one way. Well, what you're doing is you're using those forces to create yourself a faster pull. And it's what they call the slingshot effect that rounds you out to the, that'll get you much faster speeds. So that way you can get to the moon using less fuel. And so, you know, that's kind of one of those things like a dog is not stupid. It's just that I can explain things on a different level that only about, like you said, a few hundred people are going to understand. But when you break it down to say, this is how these two things work very simply in order to get you there, it is, it really does help out in understanding that, okay, this is actually possible. I don't have to know orbital physics in order to understand how this works. Okay. Well, from orbital physics back <clears throat> to ingredients of vaccines. <laughs> That's why I love the conversations with you guys. Like we, yeah, yeah. we go on really interesting tangents, but all of it is relevant. You can talk about how orbital physics communication is relevant to public health. So mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's pretty awesome. Exactly. And there's, there's so many ways I could go with that. I just think that over when you send somebody a text, they take it a certain way. And so I think when, when somebody's using larger language to communicate what they're trying to communicate, it can come off as kind of condescending. But then when we get you here to speak, I think people can hear in your voice, the sincerity and not the sarcasm, you know? So I appreciate you being here for that because I think, I think people hear, they believe the first thing they read, but I think 
I think we can overwhelm them with just comprehensive information and conversation that can change their minds. And that's why I love doing this. But there, there's an ingredient in the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that I really want, I want Dan to comment on. Because, mm. of course, there's the acids, the citrix, right? There's the salts, there's the sugars, but there's something called ethanol. Does anyone anyone know what ethanol is? Going once, going twice. <laughs> uh, hold on, I think I might have some. <laughs> Jeffrey, yeah. you're, you have the uh, farm background. Why don't you tell us what ethanol is? <laughs> I've never it's heard alcohol. of it. Yeah, <laughs> if you never drunk a beer, you drunk a lot more alcohol. I've drunk a lot more ethanol than you have uh, in any vaccine. But yeah, right. ethanol is a great preservative. And that's why, I mean, the whole reason why Western civilization created beer is because ethanol is a great preservative and a great mm. antibacterial, right? The, the, right. the uh, Eastern cultures brewed tea to boil out the bacteria and we brewed beer to ferment out the bacteria. So, and we use ethanol. So yeah, if people are concerned about ethanol vaccines, I get it, but ethanol is just good old, like, you have a beer, you've had a lot more ethanol than you're ever going to get in a vaccine. Mm, but I put that in my car, too. But we put it in everything, by the way. You, but but you actually, like, <clears throat> so on the ethanol thing, though, that's one of those things, the lack of understanding is, is that if you have too much ethanol, it actually draws water in to mm -hmm. your gas tank, and it'll cause your, your, your engine to rust out in a way that you don't want. So like everything else, like the amount of ethanol that's in this vaccine is very specific. So that way it doesn't dilute or change the efficacy into the negative or kill off whatever it is that we're trying to put into people. Right. It's the last ingredient and they usually it goes from largest to smallest. So, um, really quickly, if you have allergic al allergies or allergic reactions to general vaccines, you should consult your health provider before you get the vaccine and anyone with just food allergies. That's what Dan was talking about. If you have, if you have allergies to uh, medications or latex or pets or even instinct in insects, then that's, that's when you can still get the vaccine, but you're going to be held for about 30 minutes as opposed to the 15, just to add to the precautions of that, but you can still get the vaccine if you have allergies in general, and you can talk to your doctor about it as too. And then here's the good one, because we talked about this last time Dan was here. Can I get it if I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? And the answer, Ooh. the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, you can, you can get it. There's, um, that's also been, again, a concern about fertility and birth mm -hmm. defects and everything like people are concerned about that, but there's absolutely no evidence that the, um, the vaccine, you know, has caused any infertility. Um, a lot of pregnant women have gotten it and, um, there's, we're trying to get more information as the scientific community about it, but, um, there's like, this has been done with other vaccines in the past where pregnant women to try and prevent diseases that are particularly nasty to newborns mm -hmm. will get vaccinated for other infectious diseases in their third trimester. And the reason is when you get vaccinated and you build up your antibodies from in your immunity, mothers can pass antibodies from themselves, from their bodies to their baby's bodies through breastfeeding. Right. And so when you are able to, when you have antibodies built up in your, the sera of your body uh, as a mother that gets transferred, transferred to your milk and that has antibodies in it, milk gets into the baby, baby now has some kind of, it's called passive immunity, which mm. is a short term kind of immune protection against diseases that would really, you know, hurt a lot of, um, or cause of really severe disease in infants.
I love that. So that's something, so that's something that um, uh, has been done for other vaccines. There, there is more additional studies about that going on. I don't actually know the literature about COVID vaccination in third trimester pregnancy. I know that it is something that doctors are recommending because of, um, uh, of these other vaccines that have been used. Um, but that's something that we, we believe. And also uh, on the, immune, the infertility uh, question or concern, um, the, the way that we know that the COVID vaccine does not cause infertility is, first of all, look in the epidemiology. We're not seeing, you know, spontaneous abortions or other right. issues at a higher rate. Like it's uh, people who get women, pregnant women who get vaccinated versus pregnant women who don't get vaccinated. It's the, the, the rates are exactly the same of those, you know, issues, miscarriages, spontaneous abortions, et cetera. But also think of it from like a, like let's logic this out. The way that the vaccine works, or at least the Pfizer Moderna vaccines, for example, the Pfizer Moderna vaccines are designed to give you or to, to train your body to express a bunch of proteins that look like what's on the virus, right? And the virus and, and you know, those viral proteins trigger an immune response. You have those immunity, your antibodies, your memory cells um, from your immune system that build up an immune memory against the, the virus through the vaccine. Um, that is basically address, like doing the whole immune response without actually getting the infection. If if the vaccine was able to cause infertility, what we would be seeing is that pregnant women who got infected with COVID, who where they said just another way for the same proteins of the virus to be entered into your body is by infection as opposed to vaccine. <clears throat> that process would cause a very large number of spontaneous abortions and miscarriages. And if you look at the pregnant women who have gotten COVID, we're not seeing that. So there was no... like. Some people were concerned about it because of some, you know, vague simil sequence similarity in some sections of the two proteins um, to something else in the, in, the, in the uterus. But we don't actually have the data for the actual, like, infection to show that infection causes infertility. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why we know it's not the case, because we see infection causing infertility and the vaccine causing infertility, and we don't see either of those. Mm -hmm. That is good to hear. I'll say that 80,000 80, pregnant women are being monitored by the V-Safe COVID-19 Pregnancy Registry. So if you're interested, if you're pregnant or thinking about, you can always look that up and then have some peace of mind there. Because there's people, there's people studying all this stuff. And if we're not going to be smart enough to learn it on our own, which we shouldn't have to, we should at least trust the people that we, that we educated to be smart enough about this stuff. Because they'll come to you about something you know eventually. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, and, and, you know, we've got a friend who is pregnant and uh, just got their second shot, I believe yesterday. So Ooh. like, it's, you know, I like that. I, I don't be, I'm not envious of someone making that decision because that's a whole nother level of considerations about right. your health, the health of the fetus and just what could happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, like Dan said, there's just been no evidence that, you know, fertility rates have changed or uh, miscarriages have changed due to vaccination or COVID. Right. I think it's really great that people are studying that. But if you if you care about that, then follow those follow those centers. You know what I mean? All right. So we have uh, six minutes left in this episode. I'm going to ask Dan about something that really is important to me and that is the effects of the vaccine on people with suppressed immune systems 
Oh, in terms of like the vaccine causing problems for people with with suppressed immune systems. Should should I if I know that I have a suppressed immune system, should I go ahead and get the vaccine? That again, I'm going to punt that to talking to your health provider. Yeah, right. Um, me there, too. Right. Because I don't want to. I don't want to give like broad broad spectrum guidance that might or might not apply to folks. But it's important to like consider your medical history. Right. Um, there are some people who are immune compromised um, who have gotten the vaccine and had no issues. Um, but there are some people who are very severely immune compromised who are not getting the vaccine because they are concerned about their immune system. And those mm-hmm. are the people that we need to protect, just like we do with other vaccines. Right. A yes. lot of like kids. Think of kids with cancer who can't get vaccines because their immune systems are completely shot and an uh, an immune um, Mm -hmm. dosage from a vaccine might cause some severe issues. Those are the people we're protecting from death by, you know, yellow fever or death by, I don't know, think of dengue or whatever, or God knows what else we get vaccinated for these days. We're getting those vaccines, hepatitis A, for example, um, we're getting those vaccines to protect those who cannot. So if you are concerned about your immune system, if you've had an con- d- immune suppressing condition like HIV or cancer or, or um, Crohn's exactly. disease or some other immune disorder, definitely bring it up with your doctor, talk it over with them and, and see what is best for you given your own individual hist- uh, history. Mm-hmm. But when for those of us who do not have a suppressed immune systems, think and keep in mind that when you're making a decision about whether or not to get vaccinated, that vaccination of people who are healthy is a way, is a really good way to protect those around us who are vulnerable because of their immune system. And we're helping them live their lives to the best of their ability with a good vaccine in our arms. Yes. Um, people so with auto, autoimmune um, disease, uh, <clears throat> Ill conditions, you're not, you're not exempt from getting the vaccine, but like Dan said, you got to talk to your doctor about it and you got to weigh the risks. And if you do get vaccinated, you still have to follow the guidelines of social distancing, sanitization, and uh, masking just for your health. Okay. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's one of those things that we tend to not think about all that much is, is that, you know, the number of people we know that are immunocompromised, immunosuppressed is a lot greater. But one of the things that I think we also fail to really think about and really address is the number of people who really don't know that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, that's something that we really also need to take in consideration in terms of thought, because it's that you don't know what you don't know. You know, when we look at our health system, the number of people who just have not been able to figure out yeah. what's wrong with them because they can't afford to get into the doctor. Like that's, that's something that you really have to take into consideration. Yeah. And that goes beyond your basic checkup that like an insurance will pay for, you know? <laughs> right. And that exactly. also goes back to, that also goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode with like, you know, systematic racial issues and, right. and socioeconomic status, right? Uh, the, the places where we're seeing the highest rate of mortality from COVID by like community are those that have, you know, overwhelming or underwhelmingly supply, underwhelming supplies of, um, of medical care and people who just are not able to get to a doctor either because they're financially not able to have one, they don't have insurance or just the doctor's offices are not in that area. So it's not just an issue of like, when I say talk to your medical provider, I fully acknowledge that the tens of millions of Americans don't have that privilege. And that's all the more responsible for those of us who do have the ability to have medical care, to do the responsible thing, make the responsible choice to protect those who, for reasons outside of our own individual control, cannot get the medical care they need so they don't know whether or not they're immune compromised. That's right. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, you're just so special, Dan. We'll be, we'll be right back. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. 
And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. Place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not yes, we can. what your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. Five poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things about In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Podcast, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, Potable, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.